Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm producer Carmen Baskoff. So I should start the show by admitting I've always been a huge dinosaur nerd. Ever since I was a little kid reading picture books about prehistoric creatures. As an adult, things haven't really changed. I still have a fleet of little plastic dino toys on my desk menacing each other below my computer monitor. Several years ago, when I was an undergraduate at Yale University, I scored a student job working at the Yale Peabody Museum as a collections assistant for the vertebrate paleontology department. My dinosaur-obsessed five-year-old self would have been proud. I was mostly working in a basement lab, typing information on tiny scraps of paper into an Excel spreadsheet, but in a small way, I got to help out inventorying fossils that were millions of years old. Since I graduated and became a radio producer, a lot's changed at the Peabody Museum. So last month, I decided to pay the museum another visit. Now, if you've ever visited the Natural History Museum in New Haven with its impressive towering dinosaur skeletons, you know the Peabody's Great Hall is always filled with the sound of families. But when I walked in the museum's famous dinosaur hall, I was greeted by this sound. Walking into the Hall of Dinosaurs, the huge room was nearly cleared of most of its skeletons. That is, except for the biggest one, the towering, long-necked Brontosaurus. The giant herbivore skeleton towered overhead in the middle of the room, flanked in scaffolding and covered in workers on ladders using power tools. The Peabody Museum is closing for the next three years for a major renovation that'll change the museum as Connecticut residents know it. The famous Hall of Dinosaurs and the Hall of Mammals are already closed to visitors. And in July, the entire museum will close until 2023. The big renovation of the space means all of its dino residents are going to have to move out for a while. But I was curious, how exactly do you relocate a multi-ton Jurassic giant? I met up with Vanessa Rue for a special behind-the-scenes tour to find out. She's the collections manager for vertebrate paleontology at the Peabody. We have a great glimpse of our brontosaurus excelsus skeleton. This is the iconic specimen that people have in their heads and minds when they think of brontosaurus. You hear a saw in the background there cutting through some plaster. And uh, piece by piece, they're removing the elements. Looking up at the giant brontosaurus, Several workers were carefully sawing at the plaster joints between the beast's massive leg bones. The back of the workers' t-shirt said, Skeleton Crew. As the workers called for a break, Rue introduced me to a man I'd seen standing on a ladder. Hey, Peter. How you doing? Good, good. My name's Peter May. I own Research Casting International. Peter May is the man in charge of the company that's undertaking the daunting task of taking apart the massive brontosaurus skeleton. His company is called Research Casting International, and they're hauling each of the sauropods' giant fossilized bones all the way to the company's labs in Ontario, Canada. But to do that, they have to take apart the massive skeleton. And part of that means figuring out how museum staff almost a century ago put together the giant fossilized skeleton in the first place. 
The skeleton was mounted back in 1931, so it's been here 90 years. Been standing here, so it's uh, structurally very well built. Like there's a lot of steel in there, and um, so what we have to do is take it apart very carefully because the bone's old and brittle in places. Um, so it's very heavy, very brittle, and you have to be very gentle, but yet forceful. <laughs> there's a blend there <laughs> between just so things don't break. And, and I, so I saw you um, just a few moments ago on a ladder with a saw. Can you can you tell me about what you were doing? You were cutting through plastic. Yeah, what we're trying to do is expose the, the joints because we have to take it all apart. So we're not sure how it was built. So what we have to do is remove the plaster that surround the joints, which is surrounding the metal that, that was initially put in when they mounted the skeleton. So we're finding the bolts out. It's all bolted together. Later today we'll be taking down the, uh, the, the whole limb for them, the scapula, the humerus, radius solomon. So we start at the top and come down. As I watch workers chip away at the chunks of plaster linking the brontosaurus's bones, I ask Peter May if he gets nervous doing this kind of work. Be careful. Um, but it's all held, held up with steel. So, so the, the, the plaster we're removing right now isn't structural at all. It's, it's just a cosmetic hiding the steel that's in, in the armature. And then uh, we also have a lot of scaffolding put up just now. So b- before we rig the scaffold and put up the hoist to lower the scapula and the, the humerus, because they are he- very heavy bones, w- what we have to do is remove all the plaster, loosen all the joints, and then we'll rig it up w- with straps and we'll have a hoist and we'll lift it down very slowly. And how heavy are we talking? Scapula is probably going to be three, 350, 400 pounds. Can you describe what, which bone the scapula is? That's the shoulder blade on top of the humerus, which is the top part of your arm, or his, his arm. Peter May sounded pretty calm about removing 300-pound fossilized bones. After all, his company travels the world dismantling and rebuilding giant dino skeletons, and the crew certainly seem to have things under control. We've done quite a few, so we know what can happen. Not that it's ever happened, it's just that we could tell, like, if... We took off the vertebra and all those spines started falling off. We've been in a lot of trouble. So what we have to do, we go easy up and you can see the, uh, the, the spines being wrapped now as we go up. Because the, uh, the, the joints, they're uh, old plaster joints and, and they just sat there and off them just being held with gravity now. There's not much adhesion left in the adhesive. Taking apart and then rebuilding the brontosaurus and other fossil skeletons isn't just a way to get the bones out of the Peabody Museum to make way for construction crews. It's also a chance to bring the fossil displays up to the 21st century. Remember, the Peabody's brontosaurus skeleton was first mounted for public display in 1931. Back then, museum preparators used display techniques that would be frowned upon today, things like drilling metal rods through priceless fossil bones. Peter May told me that his crew in Canada will remount the fossils in the brontosaurus to be displayed after the renovation in a way that benefits scientists and visitors alike. We'll still have armatures on the bone, but we won't have the massive girders that you see here. Like we'll have an armature running up the tail, up the back one. As an armature is, now, is like the, the metal sort of... Yeah, that supports all the bone. And then each bone will build a cradle for it. As we're, What we're finding out here is that they cord, cord into the bone and the, there's metal strapping inside the bone, and we, we don't do that anymore. We, we keep all the armatures to the outside of the bone. Vanessa Rue is excited about this. Again, she's the vertebrate paleontology collections manager. 
to each of the bones having a new armature around them so that they're supported uh, on the outside. And this allows us to remove individual bones as needed for research, which currently is a, a challenge to do given the current uh, way that the steel wraps around the bones uh, now. So uh, it'll be, become more accessible uh, to people for research in the future, which is also exciting too. When the brontosaurus returns to the Peabody Museum, it's also going to get its posture updated to fit with modern scientific understanding. What we'll do is take the old brontosaurus skeleton and put it in a brand new pose. What does that mean, putting it in a new pose? Um, well, how it is right now, it's um, probably standing as, as they thought large sauropods looked like, with the tail on the ground and the neck down. And there was a belief that they um, weighed in water because they were so heavy. And now we know that they didn't. They, they walked on land and they're very very muscular and they, they found, found many trackways which aren't showing a tail drag so we know the tail's not dragging and the head's up in the air and it'll have a little more spring to its step instead of being a lumbering old dinosaur it'll be a nice prancing new dinosaur. But first, the crew has to bring an entire brontosaurus's worth of fossil bones up to their facilities in Canada where they'll make the new armatures to mount the skeleton. Peter May showed us a wooden crate where some of the fossils were already getting packaged up for shipping. So these are the, the bones that came off the skeleton. We're looking at a crate just now, and in the crate we have ribs, and they're huge. Like the, the ribs are huge. We're getting what one, two, three, f- four ribs in a four by eight crate, and we might be able to build another level and get another level on top. And if we can't, then we'll put the vertebrae. What we've done, we've uh, wrapped the bones in a shrink wrap. Then we cut the foam. We have a layer of foam underneath, and then we cut a foam outline, and the bone fits in the outline. And then we use a Velcro to hold them in place. And then we're going to fill up. Probably for this guy, we might have 15 crates anyway, maybe more. And each bone has a label noting the position where it was removed from the skeleton, as well as the taxon name and, yeah. and number. So it's like a big puzzle. Yeah. <laughs> And if you look on the mountain, you see all the tags that are going on. It's like every bone's tagged before we take it down. Have you ever had a, a, a label get misplaced or something like that in, in a past? Yeah, one time we had someone who's dyslexic and got the left and right mixed up. But luckily, we, we knew. <laughs> you can tell when you're mounting something which way the bone goes, but everything was labeled the wrong side. So it, it was like it was consistent, you know, because by the time you get to the, the little carpels in the, in the hand, like, you get a lot of little bones. That's Peter May, the owner of Research Casting International. They're the company that the Yale Peabody Museum has hired to take apart their large fossil skeletons ahead of a major renovation at the museum. Since my visit to the Peabody, the crew has finished taking apart the brontosaurus skeleton, and they've shipped all of the large specimens up to the facilities in Canada. The museum will reopen to the public in 2023. Coming up, I talk with the Peabody's Director of Public Programs about the bone wars of the 1800s. You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I'm Carmen Baskoff. This is Where We Live. I'm producer Carmen Baskoff. Today, we're bringing you to the Yale Peabody Museum in New Haven. When I visited last month, the museum was in the process of de-installing its brontosaurus skeleton. 
That's the massive, long-necked dinosaur that stands in the middle of the museum's Great Hall. They're taking the skeleton apart because the museum is going to be closing until 2023 for major renovations. Since I visited, the brontosaurus and other large skeletons have been shipped piece by piece to a facility in Canada. When the dino returns to New Haven, it'll be standing in a brand new pose that's more scientifically accurate. I wanted to better understand how the museum's brontosaurus skeleton got to New Haven in the first place. So I sat down with Chris Norris, the director of public programs at the Peabody. He told me that the giant herbivore has an important place in the history of paleontology at Yale. Our brontosaurus, uh, the story of our brontosaurus is, is very much the story of the Peabody Museum because they're intimately linked um, by one person, and that's Othniel Charles Marsh, who was the founder of the Peabody, and he was also the paleontologist that described brontosaurus. And Marsh was a really, really important figure in the development of science in America. He was one of the first um, passionate Darwinists in America. He believed in the theory of evolution through natural selection, which a lot of his contemporaries didn't. Um, And he was one of the first workers to go out into the American West and systematically collect fossils. Um, So his first expeditions to the American West were during the 1870s. Um, And he only made a small number of expeditions himself. And then what he did subsequently was to employ people to dig up fossils for him. And that's how we ended up with that brontosaurus specimen. It was actually found and excavated by other people, not by Marsh himself. I I wanted to quickly go back to something you mentioned. Um, You talked about him being one of sort of a a strong early proponents of Darwinism. And I guess I'm curious, just, you know, thinking about the history of paleontology, you know, now today we we think of dinosaurs and that's one of sort of the the biggest, uh, you know, pieces of proof for evolution, one of the things you can point to. Um, But how unusual was it that Marsh was a Darwinist? And and I guess what did his contemporaries, you know, how did they sort of fit dinosaurs into their worldview, if not through uh, the theory of evolution and natural selection? So, um, yes, he was quite unusual. And he was very unusual for a paleontologist. In fact, actually, paleontologists um, as scientists had quite a reputation early on for being um, very much not accepting of Darwin's theories of evolution. So um, it actually wasn't really until the 1940s that you can talk about paleontology becoming part of mainstream Darwinian thought. Um, What they tended to do was to develop a lot of odd ideas themselves. So they weren't non-evolutionary ideas. They still believed that things evolved. But different paleontologists had all sorts of different ideas about um, sort of inner drive for perfection, which they thought motivated species to evolve in a particular direction. The idea that it was all to do with competition for resources, that was the thing that wasn't necessarily widely accepted. So even as recently as the 1920s, 1930s, when you think about people like um, Henry Fairfield Osborne, who founded the American Museum of Natural History, he believed that um, animals had a sort of inner desire towards perfection or inner force towards perfection, um, which drove their evolution. So Marsh was quite unusual in that at a relatively early stage, sort of sort of 50, 60 years before that, he was already openly accepting of Darwin's ideas and actually showing how the fossils that he collected could support those ideas. 
So Marsh was going out collecting um, these fossils, and he was a professor um, doing scientific research. But uh, there was also sort of this uh, competitive element to (laughs) the collecting at that time. Um, Yes. So Marsh um, had um, someone who started out as a great friend of his, who was or certainly a friend and colleague of his, um, who was a man called Edward Drinker Cope. And Cope was based in Philadelphia. Marsh was up here in New Haven. Um, They were um, both passionate about fossils, but they were quite contrasting in what they believed. So Marsh, as I said, was a a Darwinian evolutionist. Cope was what we would call a neo-Lamarckian. He he believed that that animals um, could acquire characteristics during their lifetime, which they would then pass on to their offspring. So he had a very different view of evolution to um, what Marsh um, believed. Uh, And Cope and Marsh um, started out, I think, with quite um, a pleasant relationship, but it became adversarial because Marsh noticed some errors in fossils that Cope had described. Uh, In particular, he noticed that... um, Cope had mixed up the neck and the tail of a fossil and he had put the the head on the end of the tail whereas in fact the neck was much much longer and so what he had interpreted as the neck was actually the tail of the animal and vice versa and not content with noticing this he went ahead and he published a scientific paper in which he said Cope got this wrong and that seems to have understandably been the beginning of a, a deterioration in their relationship. The way that this played out was that they would compete furiously to collect fossils and describe them as new species. Um, And because they weren't necessarily always collecting themselves in the American West, what they were doing was employing people to go out and collect fossils and sort of implying along the way that it would be a good thing if the people working for them were able to um, make things a little bit difficult for their rivals. So there is certainly um, accounts that um, the collectors working for one of these guys would, would go and actually damage the sites or cover up the sites or in fact pillage the sites that were being worked on by their rivals' um, fossil crews out west. So this is what people called the Bone Wars. It had a mixed result. So on the one hand, for paleontology, it it wasn't great. Uh, What it meant was that um, they frequently described the same animal but gave it different names. And so paleontologists have spent many, many decades since then untangling the mess they made of taxonomy, of the naming of these different types of fossils. But at the same time, because this was great fodder for the tabloid press of the time, their rivalry and and the the sort of um, the insults that they flung at each other. It attracted a lot of public um, attention to the science of paleontology. People suddenly became aware that there were these amazing things going on and these amazing discoveries being made far away on the other side of the country. And consequently, the names of the dinosaurs that were described by Marsh, for example, and Marsh described dinosaurs like Brontosaurus and Stegosaurus, Triceratops, Allosaurus. These names became very well known and very popular. And now I think if you talk to any kid of a certain age um, who's interested in dinosaurs, they can rattle off these names and a lot more. And the reason for that excitement and that passion really lies back in those conflicts that took place in the late 19th century. Then, you know, thinking about the Peabody Museum as an institution, um, again, one of one of the oldest natural history museums in the country. I mean, does does the fact that we have this 
public museum where where people can come and can see you know some of these uh, fossils on display. Does that cut sort of come out of this era where um, the public was really kind of engaged in, in following paleontology and maybe following some of these rivalries that that existed? Well, it does, but but in a sort of indirect way, as is often the case. So Marsh himself wasn't really very interested in showing the public his fossils. So he had a museum. But it wasn't set up particularly for the public to visit or for the public to see things. Most of the most interesting things that he collected were actually um, in pieces, not assembled into mounts. They were stored in his collection so that they could be used for research. Really, um, the uh, emphasis of the Peabody on displaying material to the public and on trying to educate people um, came about during the 1920s, around about the time that this new museum was built. And there were a couple of things that were quite interesting about the Peabody when it opened. The first is that it was one of the first museums to lay out um, its displays specifically to educate visitors, to basically, rather than just show them um, random objects or or, uh, attractive or interesting objects, it was actually laid out in such a way that as you walked around it, you would be learning about, for example, the history of life on Earth and evolution. That was quite a novelty at the time. The other thing that was really interesting about the Peabody is that it had a public education department. So when the museum um, opened to the public in 1925, there was already a department within the museum that was aimed at um, teaching school children from the local area about um, the the things that were found in the collection and about some of the things that were also being shown to and used for teaching students at Yale. So the idea that you would use the museum to educate the public, that was something else that came along at a very early stage in the Peabody's history. This is Where We Live. I'm producer Carmen Baskoff. I'm talking with Chris Norris, the director of public programs at the Peabody Museum. The Peabody is one of the nation's oldest natural history museums. And walking through the dinosaur hall today, you get a glimpse back in time not just into the history of dinosaurs, but also into the history of paleontology, too. Anyone who's visited the museum probably remembers its famous Age of Reptiles mural, which dominates one of the walls of the dinosaur hall. The huge painting shows a scene of dinosaurs in a wetland environment. The mural is beautiful, but it was painted in 1947, so it shows scientists' understanding of dinosaur biology from the late 1940s, not what we know today. I asked Norris, how will the new museum renovations balance teaching visitors about the latest research in paleontology while also maintaining historic features like the mural? The one thing that is most definitely not going away is the Age of Reptiles mural. Um, I mean, it's a magnificent work of art in its own right. Um, It's a fantastic tribute to the skill of its painter, Rudy Zallinger, who... um, who did fantastic brushwork, an amazing piece of fresco secco art there. But it also is a time capsule preserving what people thought about dinosaurs in the 1940s when he painted it. Why that's interesting is because it lets us talk about how science advances. So I think one of the things that people sometimes find a little bit confusing when they talk about science is that scientists keep changing their ideas. So um, one minute we tell you one thing, another minute we tell you another thing. It's very confusing. It looks like we don't know what we're doing. In fact, what happens is we change our position as new evidence arises. So when um, 
the Age of Reptiles mural was painted, people thought dinosaurs were reptiles, they thought. And the reptiles they knew at the time were things like crocodiles and large lizards, um, which were relatively sluggish, slow-moving things. Um, they dragged their tails on the ground when they walked. Um, you know, their bodies would be very heavy if they grew to the size of a brontosaurus. And so consequently, um, the, uh, they would have to go in water to support the weight of their bodies. And these are the things that you see when you look at the mural. Well, what's happened since then as a result of the work of all sorts of paleontologists, including some of the Peabody here, is that we've come to realize that there's this close link between dinosaurs and birds, that birds are actually a type of theropod dinosaur, and that when we go looking for um, evidence for how dinosaurs may have behaved or acted, um, how their bodies were put together, we should be looking perhaps more at birds than at reptiles. Once you start doing that, you begin to realize that Brontosaurus isn't as heavy as we thought it was. It actually, like birds, had air sacs in its bones that made its body much lighter. And when you think that it's much lighter, you realize that it didn't need to go in water to, to take the weight of its body. In fact, it would have got bogged down if it had gone wandering around in swampy areas. Um, it moved around on relatively dry land. Um, it fed on plants like conifers and cycads that grew away from the water. Um, and it was also a much more mobile animal. Um, the tail didn't drag on the ground. When you look at the anatomy of the tail, you realize you have to break the tail to make it go down in a curve like uh, a crocodile's tail would naturally form. The tail in Brontosaurus is actually um, stuck out behind the animal as a counterbalance for its neck. So when people walk into the Great Hall, they'll see the tail far above their heads as it would be in a living Brontosaurus. So our new mounts are intended to contrast what we know today with the picture that people had 60, 70 years ago when that mural was painted. Scientists at the Peabody Museum today are still making new discoveries in paleontology and other sciences. I asked Norris to talk about how the Peabody balances its role as an active research institution, but also a museum that's open to the public. Yeah, I, I, it's, a, it's an interesting position that you know many university museums find themselves in. So the Peabody's collections were assembled to support research and teaching at Yale. Um, from an early stage, we recognized that they were important for teaching the public as well. And so um, that's always been within the DNA of the Peabody, if you like. Um, what's happened is that um, over time in many universities, the use of museums for teaching um, has gradually dwindled. The focus of science has moved away. The focus of teaching methods has moved away. And um, in some museums, in some universities, um, it, there's been a struggle to actually keep museums relevant and keep them part of what they do uh, in terms of teaching. Now, that's something that's never really afflicted us here at the Peabody. Um, we've always maintained a strong focus on um, student teaching. But what we want to do through this renovation is strengthen that focus even further by providing better facilities for students and more opportunities for them to interact with the collections. At the same time, one of the things you notice about the Peabody when you come and visit, and I'm sure many people, if you talk to them around New Haven and Connecticut, would say this, is that the Peabody's displays haven't changed an awful lot in the last few years. In fact, in the last few decades. Uh, if you were a child visiting the Peabody in the early 1970s, for example, the uh, fossil galleries 
would have looked pretty much the same if you'd come back last year to look at them. Now, of course, as, as you will have found out, they look quite different because we're taking them apart. And one reason we're doing that is to update all of them, not just in terms of providing more up-to-date scientific knowledge, but also finding new ways to explore the collection and new ways to stimulate discussion around the objects in the collection. What we're certainly looking to do throughout the exhibits is to bring out some of the stories behind um, the collection, some of the stories that go all the way back to when the material was first collected. At the same time, you know, when you're in a museum, you, you, you're walking a tightrope between um, teaching people about the past and the fascinating things that are in the past, but at the same time, getting over the idea that museums belong in the past. So... Um, Today, you know, there is cutting-edge scientific research that's taking place in the Peabody, which is addressing problems that are very, very pressing for us to understand today, problems like biodiversity loss and environmental change. If we're overly focused on the past in our exhibits, then I think we lose the opportunity to show people how relevant museums are to um, their lives today. Um, one area of research that's very, very active is looking at very fine detail um, at the transition at the end of the Cretaceous when the Earth was hit by a massive asteroid. Um, there were enormous um, extinctions. There was huge environmental change. The most obvious thing that people are aware of uh, is the extinction of the very large dinosaurs like Tyrannosaurus rex. Um, but in fact, the major impacts of that extinction event are seen in small things like plankton or plants. So we have various efforts that are going on in the vertebrate and invertebrate paleontology collections looking at fossilized plankton, looking at small mammals, at plants, all the small things that live around the dinosaurs and that's giving us a very very fine-grained look at what happened after that asteroid impact and about how that made the world that we live in today. That's a period of huge environmental change. It's marked by planetary shifts in the concentrations of greenhouse gases and a huge transition in um, the type of life that you see on Earth and the abundance of life that you see on Earth. So if you go back 55 million years ago, most of North America was covered in forests. There were no ice caps at the North or South Poles. Sea levels were much higher, and that's because the atmosphere was much richer in greenhouse gases. Over time, we see that change. We see the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere drop. We see the planet become drier. We see the emergence of new environments like grasslands, and we see animals adapting to this new planet. And that's very much the planet that we live in now. The challenge that we have, of course, is that we're busy modifying the planet um, and actually um, having effects which are almost as dramatic as we saw over that 60 million year period, but which are happening in a much, much shorter period of time. Um, there'll be a very strong emphasis on relating environmental change to the changes that we see going on in, on the fauna and flora of the planet and the exhibitions. And so what we end the, the travel, the journey through the history of life in those fossil galleries by doing is to take you through all of the different ways in which humans have affected the environment over the last 10,000 years. That was Chris Norris, the Director of Public Programs at the Yale Peabody Museum. The Natural History Museum will be closing for major renovations and will reopen to visitors in 2023. 
Coming up, we'll talk about the latest science research on the mass extinction that killed most dinosaurs 66 million years ago with science writer Riley Black. I'm Carmen Baskoff. This is Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm producer Carmen Baskoff, in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, we're talking about one of my favorite topics, dinosaurs. 66 million years ago, Earth underwent a mass extinction event that ended the Cretaceous period and killed off most dinosaurs. Except, of course, the tiny dinosaurs all of us see on a daily basis, birds. But what actually happened that day 66 million years ago? To answer that question, joining me by phone is Riley Black. She's a science writer and author of My Beloved Brontosaurus and a number of other books about paleontology. Riley, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you so much for having me on. So to start, I guess, you know, when I think about this mass extinction, I think about the end of large dinosaurs, you know, creatures like Tyrannosaurus. But, you know, this is a mass extinction. So can you talk about what the scale is of this event? I mean, how much of life on Earth was impacted? Yeah, mass extinctions are a relatively specific event. Uh, Paleontologists and zoologists actually debate sometimes whether something was a mass extinction or not based upon percentages and the effects on the ecosystem. But what happened at the end of the Cretaceous, what basically ushered in our current Cenozoic or age of mammals really was one of the worst mass extinctions. Uh, Paleontologists know these as the big five. So the one at the end of the Cretaceous was the last or the fifth one of those big five. And about 75% of species that we know about in the fossil record disappear, you know, in those last Cretaceous rocks. And when we go into the ones above them in what's known as the Paleogene, we don't find them anymore. So this isn't just a loss of our non-aging dinosaur friends like T-Rex and Triceratops and Edmontosaurus and all those favorites. There's also mass extinctions of mammals and of birds and of lizards and snakes. We lose entire groups of organisms like pterosaurs, those flying reptiles related to dinosaurs that lived in the skies. And uh, even invertebrates, things like ammonites, those coil-shelled fossils that lots of people get familiar with because they're so easy to collect in many places. Those totally go extinct as well. So we not only lose uh, some lineages of organisms that have been around for millions and millions of years, but even among the survivors, there's severe cutbacks. To just give one example, in North America, during the end of the Cretaceous, the main form of mammal was uh, marsupial mammals, things related to today's possums and kangaroos and things like that. It actually took the mass extinction to swing things in favor of our own placental mammal ancestors. So even among groups, large groups that survived, there were still some massive losses. Right. And and remind us, I mean, this was a huge shift in what life looked like on the surface of the earth, right? Like, I think it's maybe easy to forget uh, that dinosaurs were around for hundreds of millions of years before this, a very different uh, sort of set of ecosystems um, than anything we have today. That's right. So if you think about the time frame, just how much time this is, it's often hard to wrap our heads around it because like, try and imagine a million anything, try and imagine a million dollars, what that would physically look like. It's very difficult to do because most of us have no you know, range of comparison. So in terms of just the amount of time that dinosaurs are around, the very first dinosaurs that we know about are about 235 million years old. Uh, and the very last non-avian dinosaurs are about 66 million years old. If you think about even the time period in between that, so you might see in uh, art, for example, and you see a T-Rex and an Apatosaurus 
facing off against each other. Uh, that is incredibly inaccurate because that Apatosaurus lived about 150 million years ago and that T-Rex lived about 66 million years ago. So there's more than 80 million years in between them. So put that in context. It's been 66 million years since that mass extinction. You could fit the entire sort of post-dinosaur dominance history of the world in between those two dinosaurs with plenty of room to spare, and you're not even getting to the very first one. So they really molded the Earth's ecosystems for an incredible amount of time. So today, the consensus among paleontologists is that an asteroid caused this extinction event. And I want to talk about that more in just a bit. But I'm wondering if first, Riley, you can kind of take me back and tell me a bit about some of the early theories that scientists had uh, to explain the disappearance of dinosaurs. I mean, before the idea of an asteroid came online, what, what did people think was going on? Yeah. So once you find dinosaurs and once you realize that they're not around anymore, the obvious question is, why? Um, although, you know, that's a, I, I guess I should backtrack a little bit on that statement because the first paleontologists who described dinosaurs during the 19th century, during the 1830s and 1840s, extinction really wasn't much of a question. It was still a relatively new idea. It was something that happened. But remember, this is also during the time where evolution wasn't accepted as a reality either. It's just weird things lived long ago, and that's about as far as anybody wanted to take it. As evolution and extinction were more accepted as a reality and a really important part of life on Earth, that they're flip sides of each other, paleontologists started to come up with ideas that you know would explain why these strange reptiles thrived, and then they totally disappeared. So one idea that was popular during the early 20th century, for example, was this notion that dinosaurs had this internal timer, the evolution kind of had a lifespan for a lineage of organisms, just as it does for individuals, so that as dinosaurs got more and more settled on the planet, they started to get weird, that they put more of their bodily energies into spikes and horns and growing big and everything else, and that left them vulnerable to environmental change, while mammals stayed you know, small and scrappy and were able to adjust to these changes. But through the 20th century, you know, before the asteroid hypothesis, there are plenty of other ideas, some which were you know, relatively well accepted, for example, uh, the idea that climate change might have killed off dinosaurs, and some of them were just weird and off the wall. So there was an idea that mammals basically ate all the dinosaur eggs, or that caterpillars evolved and ate all the food for the herbivorous dinosaurs and caused an ecosystem collapse. There's even an optometrist who suggested that dinosaurs had cataracts from the intensity of the Mesozoic sun, and that's why they got all that crazy headgear to keep the sun out of their eyes, and they couldn't do it and eventually went extinct. So I think there's been dozens of hypotheses over the years, you know, some reasonable and some that are a little bit more bonkers about why dinosaurs aren't here anymore. And I think that just speaks to the fact that, you know, we, we miss them, that you know, even though we have our birds, we still miss animals like T-Rex and Triceratops and want them still around. We're fascinated with why they disappeared. So then when did scientists first start considering this idea that maybe an asteroid could be the cause of this mass extinction? Yeah, so during the 1970s, during what's known as the dinosaur renaissance, when paleontologists started to appreciate dinosaurs on their own terms and kind of get them out of the swamps and think about them as, you know, active and dynamic and interesting animals. Uh, because for much of the 20th century, their dinosaurs were considered to be slow and sluggish and stupid, and they're good for drawing museum crowds, but they weren't really very interesting to researchers. It was during the 1970s that this shifted. So the more dynamic dinosaurs became, the bigger mystery their extinction 
also became. So paleontologists played around with the idea of like, well, maybe there's a supernova, or maybe there's an extraterrestrial cause, and this no doubt you know dovetailed with you know the ability to better observe um, what's going on you know beyond our planet, you know the various telescopes and space expeditions that we've sent out there, and getting ideas. Okay, there are you know asteroids and comets striking other planets. There are supernovas and things like that. Like maybe something extraterrestrial put an end to the dinosaurs. But the critical aspect really came. In about 1980, where a paper was published about what's called an iridium level at the KPG boundary, the boundary where the, the Cretaceous ends and the Paleogene begins, basically the, the moment the dinosaurs disappear. And iridium is an element that is hard to find on Earth. We sometimes find it in the products of volcanoes, but more often it's found in um, you know asteroids and comets and things from space. So. At this level where the dinosaurs disappear, there's an unreasonably high amount of iridium. And two scientists, um, Walter and, and Louis Alvarez, they hypothesized that this iridium spike that they found at sites all around the world, right at this layer, was a sign of an asteroid impact or a comet impact, that something struck the Earth and likely caused this extinction. They didn't really have the mechanism for like how this translated into the extinction, but it seemed as good a guess as, as anybody else's. And then eventually it was realized that you know there's a crater in what's now the Yucatan that fits the time and the size for this impact and the evidence started to accumulate. So it was really during this time period where we were looking at dinosaurs more as interesting animals in their own right, that they really demanded a, uh, a reason why they disappeared. And at that time, you know, someone just happened to find like the critical clue that started to unravel the story. And I understand that there sort of was also this competing school of thought that um, you know, you mentioned earlier uh, climate change, that volcanoes might have played this role at, rather than an asteroid strike. That's right. So there have been other hypotheses. And like anything in science, you know, there's the sort of consensus view and there are dissenting views and go back and forth. And there have been a number of you know, papers published over the years about what was more important because to this extinction, because we not only have the asteroid impact, that around the end of the Cretaceous, there's also intense volcanic activity in uh, what's now Asia, and that this might have caused so much outgassing of greenhouse gases that it would have you know, changed the climate, would have you know, changed life on Earth pretty dramatically, and maybe that's the extinction trigger, or maybe those two causes worked in tandem somehow, and it was just like a really bad day for life on Earth that you not only had an asteroid impact, but you also had you know, an unreasonable amount of volcanic activity. It now seems that the timing for that volcanic activity doesn't quite line up with the extinction, and it doesn't really quite explain the degree of devastation that we see that you know, Earth had been through some pretty intense volcanic activity you know, on a similar scale before, and it didn't really have quite the same effect. Uh, there have been other times where volcanoes you know, went off and they did spark mass extinction. So it's a reasonable hypothesis to make, but there's just something about this particular case that doesn't align and doesn't seem to explain just the sheer loss of organisms from the skies on land in the oceans, that this really was uh, kind of one of a kind event. So at least as it stands now, uh, the asteroid is the best hypothesis that we have for what happened. But of course, you know, somebody might find something that changes the story later. Right. I want to reintroduce you. So my guest is Riley Black. She's the author of My Beloved Brontosaurus. And we're talking today about the mass extinction event that killed off 
non-avian dinosaurs 66 million years ago. Um, and so you mentioned earlier, Riley, the, you know, finding this evidence first of the iridium levels, then of an actual crater. But I mean, what are some of the other pieces of evidence that paleontologists have looked to um, that support this asteroid theory to, you know, bring it to the point that, that at this point, the scientific consensus is that the asteroid was the cause of this mass extinction event? Right. So as we go back to the fossil record and we look at the timeline of what happened, some of those kinds of evidence are really important. So we not only have this sort of iridium band in the critical layer, but above that, just by a little bit, we have a lot of soot and ash and uh, glass spherules and what's called uh, shock quartz in these so that we know that a, a severe impact happened, like devastating enough to send some of this material, this sort of evidence of geologic trauma to sites all over the world that just got um, basically shot back up into the atmosphere and spread over the planet. And as it did so, um, not only did it raise the temperature uh, in in the air to like uh, the degree of an oven, basically, that this probably killed a large number of organisms, but also sparked forest fires in different places. And it was we're getting a better idea of what were the local effects of this impact in places outside of you know ground zero, outside of where that asteroid touched down. And when we look beyond those levels, we go up a little bit higher, we see uh, what's called a fern spike, about 100,000, 200,000 years after impact. And this is when ecosystems are starting to settle again. They're starting to heal a little bit. We see the proliferation of ferns and fungus and other organisms that are really good at colonizing disturbed habitats. So it's not, you know, and this is important because we've seen other asteroid impacts through time that didn't have this effect. There's actually a, a large asteroid impact that left a bigger crater during the Cenozoic, but didn't spark a mass extinction. So there was something very special about this impact that it caused the level of destruction that it did. And we can start to track uh, the immediate effects on the, in terms of you know, days, weeks, years, and then we start to see the recovery uh, relatively quickly afterwards. And what do we know about like why this asteroid impact was different than the others you mentioned that didn't cause mass extinctions? Right. So one of the aspects that made this impact so deadly was the long-term effect. So you obviously have a huge you know, chunk of rock miles across striking the planet. It throws a lot of geologic material back up into the atmosphere. It comes down all over the world, causing some of these effects, these heating effects and these fire effects around the planet. And that happened relatively rapidly. We're talking in terms of like days to, to weeks of this. Long term, that asteroid struck a deposit of rock that was rich in materials that actually caused global cooling. So as those, you know, bits of um, rock, as, as those, you know, basically pulverized bits that were thrown back back into the atmosphere started to take effect, actually started to chill the atmosphere. So the animals that didn't die during that first heat pulse started to suffer from basically was the Cretaceous equivalent of nuclear winter. And that was actually used as a metaphor during the Cold War that, you know, we've seen this happen on the planet before, and this is why we shouldn't use our nuclear weapons, is because we, we've seen the effects of, of this on our planet. So that's probably why this particular impact was so deadly. There are other aspects of it that are still being studied. For example, it's the speed and the angle. And, you know, we don't have the original asteroid anymore. It was pulverized so far as we know. So a lot of this relies on reconstruction and on modeling. But it seems that the particular place it hit, when it hit, 
and then what was left in the atmosphere really made this particularly deadly, whereas other asteroid strikes didn't have the same effect. You mentioned earlier, you know, again, this mass extinction event, 75 percent roughly of life on Earth was wiped out by this. But, you know, we do know that not all dinosaurs are extinct. We know that birds are a subgroup of dinosaurs that are still around today. And then, of course, we also see after this the rise of mammals, including, you know, eventually ourselves. And so what do we know about what allowed some species to survive and eventually thrive after this extinction event? Right. That's a big question in that we've so focused on what we lost that sometimes we haven't really asked how did other forms of life make it through, what allowed them to survive. One hypothesis that a group at the University of California, Berkeley, has been working with is that there's something about organisms that lived in and around freshwater ecosystems. So things like turtles and fish and frogs and alligators and things like that, that they have a different evolutionary turnover rate. They seem to last longer in the fossil record than creatures that lived on land. Animals that seem to have a, live in a sort of buffer zone, a place where these effects of the impact might be mitigated, seem to do better. And that may have allowed them to survive. But that's still very much an open question. I'd be fascinated to see what we discover about that. Because if we focus on what lived and what allowed them to survive, we might learn some lessons in our own age of ecological dis- disruption to see what's going to allow creatures to survive and thrive um, through what may be the sixth mass extinction. I want to thank Riley Black. She's a science writer and author of My Beloved Brontosaurus and a number of other books about paleontology. Riley, thanks for joining. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And I understand you have a book about this mass extinction that's coming out. Do we have any idea when we'll, we'll be able to read it? Yeah, so I'm working on that now, and it's slated for summer of next year. So around the time the next Jurassic World movie hits theaters, you should be able to read it. (laughs) Thank you, Riley, for joining. Uh, This is Where We Live. I'm Carmen Baskoff. Today's show was produced by me with assistance from Katie Tolarski and Tess Terrible. To see pictures of the deconstruction of the brontosaurus skeleton at the Peabody, visit our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Carmen Baskoff. Thanks for listening.